Our sermon text today comes from Psalm 72. Uh, That's on page 485 in the Pew Bibles. Now, before we look at this, what what is considered a royal psalm, it would be helpful to remember the overarching worldview behind this psalm. This is something that we've been using a lot this summer. Uh, If we could pull those slides up. I'll read the questions if, if you'll read the answers. Who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice. What does he do? He blesses and protects those who embrace his covenant from the heart while demonstrating his justice against those who rebel against him. When does he do these things? Often in the here and now and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Embrace his covenant from the heart and wait patiently yet fervently for his justice. Jay Sklar from Covenant Seminary developed these questions and answers to summarize how the psalm writers understood the Lord, understood themselves. These were the lenses they used looking at the world. And if you and I can believe with them that the Lord blesses and protects his people while demonstrating his justice against rebels, we can also ask a further question. How? How does he bless and protect those who love him? How does he deal with rebels against him? Well, sometimes the Lord blesses his people and demonstrates his justice immediately. That that is, he does it himself directly. But most often in the story of scripture, we see that he does these things mediately. That is, he works indirectly through a mediator. For example, Moses was a mediator. God worked through him. Or when Israel first entered into the promised land, God worked through the judges. He he took care of his people and he routed his enemies through men and women like Ehud and Samson and Deborah. But, But much earlier in the story, God had revealed to Moses and even Abraham before that, that God planned for a king to rule over his people. Although God himself would remain the ultimate king, he would bless and protect and demonstrate his justice through a human king. Now today we're looking at Psalm 72 to hear what God's king is supposed to be and do for his people. It's a prayer, ultimately, a prayer by the king of Israel for the king of Israel to be the right kind of king, the kind of king through whom God would bless and protect his people and make an end of his enemies. But before we read it, let's pray, asking God to give us eyes to see and hearts to believe that Jesus is the true king this psalm anticipates. And as we hear this word, may our confident hope in him and his present reign grow. Let's pray. Father, you indeed have given us this word to show us a picture of, uh, of you and the king that you have appointed to rule over all things. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would dig ears for us to really hear and work faith in our hearts to believe 
to see and enjoy Jesus as our King, to joyfully, gladly submit ourselves to Him, to turn away from all the ways that we try to rule ourselves, and to enjoy His reign over us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Psalm 72 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. Literally, that is shalom for the people. And the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor And him who has no helper, he has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the life of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun, may people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. I want to start simply by noting that verses 18 to 20 there, right at the end, are an appropriate ending to this psalm. And yet it seems that they're most likely a closing doxology for the whole second book of the Psalms. If you, if you know this, or maybe you don't know this, but Psalms is organized as five separate books, uh, five major sections called books. And so the next Psalm, Psalm 73, would be the opening of a new book. Uh, now, obviously, the praise of the Lord is something that we could spend a lot of time talking about. We can unpack the reasons that praise is encouraged in these verses. But, I'm, but for the sake of time today, we're going to spend our time focusing on the king that is pictured in the main section of Psalm 72. And yet as soon as we start talking about a king, 
you and I may find it difficult to connect with that idea, with that imagery. The idea of a human king can be difficult for us today. I mean, our country was founded by folks who were not what you would call enthusiastic about the idea of a king, to put it mildly. But, but I would actually suggest to you today that our distaste for kings does not actually come from the concept of kingship itself. No, we, we don't like kings because mostly we've only seen terrible ones. It's like this. You've seen Disney's 1973 Robin Hood, right? The, the cartoon movie with that sly fox Robin Hood and my favorite character, the wandering minstrel rooster. In that story, King Richard is tricked. He's hypnotized into going off on crusade. And who pretends himself as king? Who sends the wolfish sheriff of Nottingham to overtax that little poor family of rabbits? Who steals money from the church to grow his own wealth? Who imprisons most of the town folk? Who is about to hang Friar Tuck to lure Robin Hood to his death? It's that thumb-sucking Prince John, the phony king of England. Now, for all of his clever bravery, you recognize in that story that there's only so much that Robin Hood can do himself. And while he does a lot against Prince John, do you remember the moment of real resolution in that story? The moment that really satisfies us. Things are only put right when the real king reappears. Because when Richard's reign is restored, justice is finally served. Prince John is imprisoned with his crew to break stones in the royal rock piles. Robin and Maid Marian marry at last and set off together for Sherwood Forest. And the people, the animals of the true king, from the rooster to the rabbits, are finally free to live in peace Nobody in the story is sad that Richard returned. No, because the wrongness that permeated the world under Prince John, because of that, they were ready for the real king's appearance. Now, it might sound silly to use that as my illustration for today, but, but that feeling that we get in that moment of resolution, that satisfaction at the real king's return. That's why I say we don't really have a problem with kingship. We have a problem with terrible kings. Because whether it's a wannabe king or a real one, we know that the damage that a bad king can do. And it's not wrong to lament the wrongness of selfish leaders who do more harm than good. And it's actually right to want someone powerful and good to make things right. And here in this passage is good news for people who ache for such a king to come in real life because Psalm 72 pictures a king who is nothing like Prince John, who's even better than King Richard. In this prayer by and for the king of Israel, we see a king Anyone would be blessed to.
to belong to. So what's the true king like? That's the first big question we need to answer from the text. And we hear the first part of the answer in verses 1 through 4. The true king rules righteously. The true king rules righteously. Righteousness appears three times in the opening verses, underscoring how vital it is for the king to do what is right. But if you're paying attention, you'll notice that the king himself is not the one who gets to decide what is right and what is wrong for his people. The very first request of this prayer is for the king to receive God's justice, God's righteousness, because merely human ideas about what's right and wrong are not enough. Any student of the history of the world knows how easily power corrupts and how absolute power corrupts absolutely. But when God's ideas of true justice revealed through his law are applied, then the people will experience that true prosperity, as it says in verse 3. Translated literally, they will experience shalom and all pervasive peace that creates the right circumstances for the flourishing of life in every way. We see that shalom in verse 4. The poor are defended. The vulnerable needy are rescued. Those who harm and take advantage of others find themselves crushed beneath the weight of justice. As the true king does this, The king fulfills his role as the royal son that's mentioned there in verse 1. The king of Israel was designated as the son of God. Not how some societies did. The Egyptians, for example, viewed their kings as deities. The pharaohs presented themselves as gods. But the Israelites were to consider their king the son of God as he reflected God's character to them. He himself was not a God, but he was to image God to them. And so when he defended the poor and delivered those who were needy in their vulnerability, the king was actually doing two things. First, he was fulfilling his role as an instrument in God's hands to bless and to protect his people while demonstrating his justice against rebels. Through the king, God's people... And did you notice they do belong to God? In verse 2, speaking to God, the king calls them your people, your poor. Through the king, God's people are blessed and protected. And through the king, in verse 4, God crushes the oppressor. As one pastor put it, the point is that the king here is not being vindictive. Rather, he is executing The Lord's judgments upon those who have set themselves up against the Lord and who indeed are trying to overthrow the Lord as king and overthrow his kingdom. And so that true king who rules righteously is an instrument of blessing and judgment in God's hands. But the king was doing more. He was also showing people what their God is like. 
seeing the true king, they could believe that their God was the kind of God who loves poor and broken-hearted people. He's the kind of God who opposes proud people whose selfishness harms others. And we get a glimpse of this kind of righteous rule in Israel's kings of the Old Testament. Uh, You may remember the story of Solomon who wisely executes judgment in a situation of two women both claiming that a child is theirs. We get glimpses of this in the story of redemption, but, but I want you to think about today. Don't we need this kind of king today? Don't we need a ruler who doesn't show favoritism to his friends? A ruler who defends, actually defends the poor and the vulnerable instead of exploiting them. Don't we need a king who establishes an all-pervasive peace and reflects God's character to us? So we need... This true king is a king who rules righteously. But in verses 5 and through 7, we hear the second quality of a true king. Look with me. The true king is one who rules eternally. Verse 5 talks about a fearful respect of the king that would endure as long as the sun and moon. It's a fear that accompanies a righteous king. It's the fear that is stirred up awe in, and respect in the hearts of his people. And it's a fear that is more like terror in the hearts of his enemies. Now this idea of an eternal king, it may remind you that in most of the medieval movies you've seen, you've also heard the, the child's cranting, long live the king. And that same sentiment existed in the ancient Near East too. In the book of Daniel, Uh, the advisors of King Nebuchadnezzar would begin their speeches to him with, O king, live forever. Wishful thinking, maybe. Now the idea here of an eternal king, it might be hyperbole. It might be an exaggerated way of asking God for a long reign, but there is a hint of more here. Because do you remember what the Lord had promised to David? That one of his descendants would be king and I, God promised, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, of course, none of the kings of the Old Testament sat on the throne that long. Some reigned for 30 years, some for 40 years. But ultimately, that's a small breadth of time. And so even if during their time they did bring something of the stability and peace and flourishing pictured in verses 6 to 7, the the effect was short-term at best. Here and now, we are familiar with dictators for life. I spent uh, four months in Africa after college in in a country that was really a paragon of what democracy could look like in Africa. And yet in the years since then, the the man who took power by force in a military coup and who promised that there would be elections. After about eight years, those elections actually happened. And guess who won? Uh, He did. And, And then 
They set term limits with the new constitution and, and one term turned into two terms and, and I was there as the end of his term. His second term was coming up and do you know what happened? The constitution changed. And now some 15, 20 years later, guess who's still in power? We are familiar with dictators for life. And you know what? We're also used to disappointment. That's why elections usually swing like pendulums every few years. We're, we're not really interested in the leaders we've seen remaining in charge. And so we are people always in transition. But what could, what could this world look like if there is a good king who has a long reign, even an eternal one? And what could happen if his rule is not merely local or national, but universal? That's the third aspect of the true king, and we see it in verses 8 through 11. The true king rules universally. This language in these uh, verses of sea to sea and from the river, which is a reference to the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth, this language is encompassing the whole known world at the time. But you'll notice that the king's universal rule is not just about territory. It's about people. It mentions desert tribes and kings from afar coming to pay tribute and fall down in honor of Israel's king. Even those who hate him lick the dust of defeat before him. Now at the time when this psalm was written, Solomon's kingdom was as close to fulfilling this section, uh, as, uh, this prayer, as any king's kingdom ever was. Not only did foreign rulers fear Solomon and pay him tribute, more than that, they respected him. Like the queen of Sheba, whose country is named in verse 10 here. She came, and you can read about this in 1 Kings chapter 10. She came and she marveled, not so much at Solomon's wealth, as his wisdom. Listen to what she says after seeing Solomon's rule. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. When the true king reigns universally, it's not just his own people who know and benefit from his righteous rule. Others see it and they're drawn to it. They see the beauty of this king and their heart resonates with an ache, with a longing that they themselves have had to be under a good king, a king who will bless and protect them too. For you, wouldn't it be good to be under such a king? If he really ruled righteously, eternally, universally, wouldn't you consider, wouldn't you consider leaving behind any other national identity that you had to be named as his? 
But if to this point you're still on the fence, then consider the next verses that speak to the character of this king's rule. In verses 12 to 14, we see that fourth thing that this true king is like. The true king rules compassionately. He rules compassionately. And he does that because in verse 14, the blood of his people is precious in his sight. He doesn't use his people like some kings do. Their bodies are not cannon fodder for his wars of aggression. No, he's the kind of king who redeems his people from oppression and from violence. He's the kind of king who pays a ransom to reclaim them for himself. He's the rescuer who hears his people when they cry for help. He himself is the help of the helpless whose heart is toward the vulnerable. He's the one who uses his strength on behalf of the weak. Can you imagine a kingdom like this today? A kingdom where boys and girls are protected from predators. We need a king like this because... Because aren't some of us in need of defending today? Some of you have been wronged deeply in your life. And at times when you could not defend yourself. Don't people today still need a deliverer who will break the hands that try to harm and take advantage? The last trait of the true king is seen in verses 15 to 17. The true king blesses his people endlessly. The true king blesses his people endlessly. That's why long life is prayed for him in verse 15. That's why prayers are made for him continually because under his rule, God is blessing his people in every way. And while everybody in Tennessee, or East Tennessee, knows that corn don't grow at all on Rocky Top, the soil's too rocky by far, look at verse 16. The grain in the land, the staple food of the people, it's so abundant that even the mountaintops are covered with waving fruitful stalks. But look what else is blossoming, too, in verse 16. The people themselves are in bloom. Under his reign, under his name, his people are blessed. Just as God had promised to Abraham long before saying, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through his anointed king, God would keep that promise. And in return, God's people from Israel and ultimately from every nation on the face of the earth, from every family of the earth, they would call God's king blessed. The psalm paints a beautiful picture of what life looks like when the true king reigns. It looks like total peace, but it's so much better than just the absence of war. All the circumstances required for human flourishing are cultivated. Rebels are crushed and the righteous are blessed and protected by the king. As he flourishes himself as God's royal son, his people too 
would flourish spiritually and physically. That's why those who've studied the story of Israel's kings have a saying. As goes the king, so goes the people. But in Israel's story, that phrase usually points to a much darker reality than the bright one that's pictured here. Because Solomon may have gotten off to a good start. The temple may have been built. Right worship may have been cultivated at first in Solomon's time. Gold and silver may have become as abundant as sand in his kingdom. And yet it didn't stay that way for very long. Things went horribly wrong. Let's be real. Even the best of Israel's kings never came close to living up to this picture of true kingship. The story of the kings in the Old Testament is largely a story of failure. Even Solomon, who wrote this prayer, whose wisdom and godliness shone like the sun, even his reign descended into darkness so that his people would describe the yoke of his rule as heavy on their shoulders. And within a generation of this prayer's composition, not only did Solomon turn away from the Lord, but his son, Rehoboam, shattered the kingdom into pieces. Almost as soon as this prayer was first sung, God's people following their kings headed down the path that led to exile. Why? That's the question we have to ask. Why? We were made to flourish. People were made to flourish under this king's rule. So why did their kings fail? Why did the kingdom of Israel fall? That's the same reason why we fail to flourish and the world around us displays so little of the shalom that is pictured in this song. It's the reason why the Bible says that we ourselves were, before God's grace appeared, we were enemies of God. Because we are all sons of Adam, all daughters of Eve. We are, by nature, rebels against the Lord, following our first parents. And not only have we inherited our first parents' sin, leaving us with rebel hearts, but we have each added to them our own guilty records, our own unholy lives. We have each in our own way, in a way that's terribly similar in each of us, we have each sought to sit ourselves on the throne in God's place. And yet we have to confess that we are terrible kings. When we reign, things fall apart. When we reign, shalom is broken. The peace between God and us, peace between each other, peace between us and creation, it all breaks. And yet in our rebellion against the Lord, we end up in the service of another who styles himself as a king, the pretend king of this world. And, and what can a person expect from such a false king? 
If the saying is true that as goes the king, so goes the people, then what would it mean for us if we forever served the enemy of the true king? The king who will crush the oppressor and whose enemies will lick the dust in defeat. Apart from God's mercy, would that not be our end too? If each of us must first identify ourselves as enemies of God's king, knowing what we deserve, then where, we need to ask, where is there room for hope? Hope has been announced to us, to sinners like us, in the gospel of Jesus. In the ancient world, a gospel was simply that. It was an announcement of good news. Most often, it happened when, when one king was conquered in war and a new king was raised up in his place. And for those peasants who lived far, far from the capital city, word would be sent out to them. And the announcement would be, you, good news, you have a new king. He's actually a lot like the old one, just so you know. But you have a new king, and now all of your allegiance, all of your loyalty should go to him. But while the kings of the earth are just same as each other all the time, the announcement of Jesus as king is the best news possible. Because although Israel's kings failed and her kingdom fell, God remained faithful to his people, to his promises. And he sent Jesus, his son, to take up the kingship that's pictured in this song. His anointing as king was announced at his baptism when the heavens opened. And the spirit descended on him, anointing him for this role. And a voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And even in Jesus' earthly ministry, we see the qualities of kingship our hearts long for. We see his compassion. We see his righteousness that shows us exactly how compassionate and how righteous God the Father really is. But if you really want to see the beauty of Jesus' kingship, if you want to see it most clearly, we need to look at the cross. Because it was there that King Jesus allowed himself to be crushed in the place of rebels like you and me. It was he who wore the crown of thorns in mockery of his kingship. But he did that so that he could dress you and me in his royal robes of splendor. King Jesus shows his grace in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiving our sin, reconciling us to the Father, bringing us safely out of darkness and into his kingdom of life and light. And that's why the church, from the apostles through today, celebrates Jesus as both Savior and Lord. He is both the rescuer and the ruler God promised to give his people. And King Jesus, he does rule over us righteously. 
He is the one who blesses and protects us so well that not a hair can fall from your head apart from his will. He is the righteous king who subdues us to himself, subduing us not with raw power and oppression and fear, but who drives out our fear with his love and his grace and his goodness. Jesus is that king who rules over us righteously. And he is that king who rules over us eternally. He is the resurrected Lord. Death has no dominion over him. And so his kingdom is an eternal one. And think about what that means for the possibility of your flourishing within his kingdom. It's infinite. Jesus is the king who rules eternally. And his rule is even now expanding. And there will come a day when it is universal. And that means that you and I can lean into this world with a distinctly Christ-focused optimism. Because the gospel has gone forth. Even to us, here at the ends of the earth, the gospel has come to us. And so it's actually coming about that people from every tribe and tongue are putting their hope in Christ. We, as those who were foreigners to all of this, we are following like those three kings who saw the star at Jesus' birth, who came from afar to lay their treasures down at Jesus' feet. That picture itself will be fully realized, we're told, when Christ comes. When the kings of the earth bring their glories into the kingdom of heaven and lay them down at the feet of King Jesus. We know that not all is subjected to him yet, but it will be. Because we're told that Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being, bound, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His rule is expanding and it will be universal. And he even now rules over us compassionately. Is he not patient with you in your weakness? Is he not gracious with you? When you've sinned that same sin that you've struggled with your whole life, his promise to you is, I've covered that too. When you're struggling, he promises that he is with you. When you're needy, he promises to be your help. More than that, he is your help. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on you to strengthen you and cause you to stand in the grace that he gives. In Jesus, the word is fulfilled that this servant of God, this one who is anointed to reign as king, a bruised reed, he will not break. 
a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is the king who is blessing us now and will bless us endlessly. Jesus is the king who promises that when he returns, everything will be made right. What's our response to this announcement? This proclamation of good news. This announcement that there is a true king who reigns. God has installed him on the throne and he reigns even now. What is our response to this good news? This good news that meets every longing that we've had. This this news that satisfies that ache that we have in our souls. The response that God requires of you is simply to receive, to rest in Jesus your King and to put your trust in Him, to turn away from the ways that we try to reign over our own lives, to keep control over our own sexuality or our money or our property or our time. We are to continually renounce our right to rule over ourselves and instead joyfully submit to the king who gives us his life. It may be that there are areas of your life that you are still seeking to have Jesus as your savior, but not as your Lord. I'd encourage you to submit yourself to him. Ask, Father, King Jesus, help me to see those areas that I'm still holding on to for myself. Open my hands to give it to you so that I might receive the peace that you have for me. To the one who is not yet willing to do that, you need to hear this warning that's implicit in this passage, that opposition to the anointed king of Yahweh, this king who rules on the Lord's behalf, that is opposition to the Lord himself. If you continue to reject King Jesus, there will come a day where his rule over you will be evident, and yet it won't be to your benefit. But consider today the beauty of submission to this kind of king. He is no tyrant over us. He is our life and our joy and our peace. But to you believers, let me leave you with this. A friend of mine put it this way. We have a king and are citizens of a kingdom of hope and joy and peace. I forget this almost every day. You and I are forgetful people. And yet in this psalm is the beautiful hope that as goes the king, so goes the people. And that means for you who put your hope in Christ, as goes Jesus, so goes you. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you that Jesus is your answer to our need for a better king and a better kingdom. Father, we praise you that we 
have seen in Jesus the, the kind of king that we truly need, a, a king who is powerful and a king who is good, a king is compassionate, a king who is merciful. So Father, I pray that more and more you would incline our hearts toward him, that we would turn away from trying to rule over our lives as, as little tyrant kings ourselves. And we would gladly submit to his rule over us. Father, thank you for the grace that you have shown to us in Jesus, your son. And I pray that we as your people would in turn reflect his beauty to a watching world. That we would live before our neighbors and our co-workers and our, our friends, our families, uh, our family members who don't yet know you. Lord, may they through us. See the graciousness of King Jesus, that it's better to be a servant in his kingdom than to rule any world for ourselves. We pray this for the glory of Christ, for the exaltation of his name. We pray it all for his sake. Amen.